Hey, Magnificasters. This week, we're bringing you another episode of Magnificast Extra Credit. Generally, these are episodes that are more produced and try to highlight an important story, organization, or angle in Christianity and culture. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Aaron Green, who is the Executive Director of Action, Organizing, and Development at Brave Commons, an organization that advocates for the rights of LGBTQ students at Christian universities. If you want to know more about Brave Commons, you can check out their website, bravecommons.org, or follow them on Twitter, at Brave Commons. Every week, Dean and I start the Magnificast in about the same way. We tell you our names and what we do. Every week I say, I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. If you listen to the Magnificast, you already know the bit. Well, in case you don't realize, the school I teach at is a Christian school. It's an institution with a Methodist history and a Christian mission. Basically, that means that students here have to go to things like chapel. They follow some very Christian-y rules. You know, like, don't worship Satan, don't do drugs, and leave some room for the Holy Spirit when you're smooching. In fact, the schools that Dean and I both went to in our undergrad were also Christian schools. He and I are, for better or worse, the product of private Christian liberal arts colleges. For the most part, I've had a pretty positive experience in Christian higher education. I imagine that's because I'm a straight white guy and it was kind of, you know, made for me. Though I can certainly see some pretty big glaring problems with it as well. For example, Christian universities are historically white universities. There are some pretty jarring statistics that prove this point. For example, the Christian Post reported that in 1999, 82% of students at Christian universities were white. Though the diversity of students at these institutions are slowly shifting. In 2016, that number trended downward. Only 62% of students at Christian universities are white. While that's not a huge change, it is a trend that Christian schools are starting to think about. And rightly so. A more diverse student body should give Christian universities pause to think about how whiteness is built into their institutions. When things change in higher education, especially as something as conservative as Christian higher ed, they change through rather incremental conversations and policy changes. Really boring, but important stuff. When it comes to changing racial demographics, those slow conversations are all about diversity. Diversity is usually talked about as a way of reorganizing the existing university structure to include folks who are usually forgotten. There are some organizational and philosophical problems with this approach. You can go check out the Marika Rose episode uh, a few weeks ago to uh, get more on that, but at least it's a conversation with good intentions. Making space for black and brown students on Christian campuses is definitely a good thing. However, race is often where the conversations surrounding diversity end. In the context of Christian education, diversity can make sense of why Christian educational communities ought to care about the oppression of black people. But so far, it's lacked the capacity to figure out how to make sense of LGBTQ students. Christian colleges are beginning to understand that their whiteness has excluded people of color, but it's beyond their capacity to see how their policies and attitudes exclude LGBTQ students. To help me get to the bottom of this, Aaron Green, the Executive Director of Action, Organizing, and Development at Brave Commons, is going to help us see just what's up with this problem and help us understand why advocating for LGBTQ students at Christian universities is an urgent matter. So here's Aaron. I think the, the main reason why gender and sexuality are specifically like perhaps the slowest thing to to change it's just that like if your whole theology is constructed 
around the idea that the only acceptable form of marriage happens between a biological male and a biological, you know, female person, then to question that or to wrestle with that or to introduce something other than that um, becomes, I mean, I think for that Christian, it's like you're ripping, you know, pulling the rug out from under their whole theological premise. For Aaron, homophobia and transphobia aren't just elements that need correction within evangelical Christianity, but rather they're at the foundation of how evangelicals construct their identity and theology. Christianity can't simply be diversified to include LGBTQ individuals. Instead, it has to be reformed and restructured. And, as Aaron goes on to explain, it can be a scary and hard process. If it's frightening and scary, it, it was something that I had to do for myself. Um, because I was non-affirming and I was internalizing um, homophobia inside of myself because I tried everything I could to, like, no matter what, it was like my theology had to be right. It could never be that I was wrong about the way I thought about God or the way I thought about what the Bible taught. The goal was always to protect that my theology was correct. I don't think Aaron's story is all that unique. Evangelical Christianity formulates itself as an identity based on having the right set of beliefs. So the nature and content of those beliefs are extremely important and usually pretty contentious. Working your way through those beliefs can cause many Christians some serious existential angst. What does it mean to be a Christian if you're not that type of Christian? Though besides just wrestling with one's own faith, they also have to contend with the institutions that reify those troubling Christian beliefs like homophobia and transphobia. Not only is there a strong infrastructure of right-wing Christian media that spread anti-LGBTQ ideologies, Christian colleges themselves perpetuate those forms of anti-LGBTQ Christianity through ideological community statements and exclusionary off-the-books policies. In light of all this, it's clear that Christian universities are a place of ideological and material struggle for LGBTQ rights. It's out of this struggle that Aaron, along with Michael Vesquez and Lauren Elena Satalango, started Brave Commons, an organization that creates a network of support for LGBTQ students at Christian universities, but also fights for the rights and acceptance of those students at those institutions. Here's how Aaron tells the story. The way it started for Michael, anyway, was that there were students at universities, Christian universities in the Midwest, who were on the receiving end of just some serious, like, stigmatizing policies, overt aggression or microaggressions happening by faculty on campus. I mean, th there's a number of things that happen. Michael was directly involved in um, helping students specifically at Hope College, and they nailed, like, a their own version of, of like the 95 thesis that Martin Luther uh, put on the Catholic church door, uh, but they did it at Hope University in favor of um, and affirming LGBTQ folks. And it's, it sort of caused this, you know, wildfire in the Midwest at those Christian universities there. I was doing the same thing that he was, but I was doing it in California, at Southern California Christian universities. And we eventually heard about each other's work and it was like, it, you know, he, he had already founded the idea of Brave Commons. And I think we just realized, you know, we needed to combine uh, what we were doing together. Using their own experience as activists at Christian universities, Aaron and the others joined forces to form Brave Commons. 
As an organization, Brave Commons is really unique. As far as I can tell, they're the only activist organization out there giving their attention solely to fighting for LGBTQ students at Christian universities. Something really important about Brave Commons is the way they understand the issues of homophobia and transphobia at Christian institutions. Like I said earlier, conversations in Christian higher ed, especially when it comes to controversial issues, move incredibly slowly. But Brave Commons understands the urgency of these issues, and they're quick to identify what's really at stake. The urgency surrounding this kind of work um, is because these students, by and large, are denied their basic human rights in these spaces on a daily basis. Um, And obviously, over and above their straight peers, you know, this happens to LGBTQ students. Um, They're often closeted. They're often internalizing homophobia. They're in a constant survival mode and they are on the receiving end of discrimination while being at a much higher risk for um, medical effects like depression, anxiety, isolation, suicidal ideation, etc. And our goal at Brave Commons is to, to protect these students to provide them safety and resources to buffer this really difficult reality that these students are in and can't necessarily come out of on their own. Being excluded or targeted for one's identity is certainly a tragic experience for a college-age person. University is the place where students ought to be finding themselves and figuring out what they're all about. It's hard to do that when the environment one is in has already imposed a certain type of judgment on you. To get at more of the how Brave Commons advocates for LGBTQ students, I asked Aaron what material steps or types of struggle they're ready to engage in. It means utilizing every way we possibly can. So we we use social media, we use email, we use phone calls, we use like if we have to show up somewhere, we'll show up somewhere. Um, but it's it's about gathering up community as much as possible or finding other people Um, for these students, connecting them with others who may be safe on campus. It looks like phone calls, planning, maybe a direct action demonstration or planning on how a student can have a conversation with someone at a university's administration. I mean, it really manifests itself in so many different ways based on the varying needs that these different students have based on like their location. So far, if you're not someone who falls into the LGBTQ category, you might be wondering what it actually looks like to be gay or trans on a Christian campus. After all, Christian schools still have to deal with Title IX and can't just discriminate against LGBTQ students. Largely, you're right. Christian schools can't just write a policy that says gay, bi, and trans students need not apply. But there are some subtle ways around this. For example, Almost every Christian school has a community policy that states pretty explicitly the types of behavior that the school prohibits. Some of these statements are better than others. Most of them, however, touch on LGBTQ issues in some way. For example, Olivet Nazarene University, a pretty regular, run-of-the-mill Christian school, um, they have a statement that offers a well-worn phrase when it comes to LGBTQ students on Christian campuses. Olivet's statement explains that their students agree to avoid certain practices, including, but not limited to, fornication, sexual promiscuity, adultery, pornography, and any form of sexual misconduct, and homosexual acts. There are more than a few issues that you could raise here, but what immediately draws my attention is that isolating homosexual acts is a rhetorical strategy against understanding sexuality as a type of identity. 
This is a phrase that you'll find in a lot of community statements at Christian colleges. These types of policies certainly have the potential to be ostracizing. Not to mention that there's no clear statement about what happens if you break the rules. I'm all about that clear policy. Shout out to Church Clarity for uh, turning me on to that idea. Though, all of that aside, there are some other places students might feel the weight of unofficial persecution for being gay, bi, or trans. Here's what Aaron had to say. Besides university policy, which is, you know, the bro- that broad and sweeping stigmatization of LGBTQ folks and gender, the topic of gender, um, it happens in the classroom. Because if you, if you do have professors, like I'll, I'll speak about my, my direct experience that I had at Biola University. Um, if you have professors who are on board with, with non-affirming theology, then that opinion could very easily and does very easily come out in a lecture. Um, It can get imposed onto the student based on certain textbooks that are being used by certain conservative Christian theologians. So these students are also, um, what a lot of people don't realize is, is that Christian colleges will often require students to take Bible courses in addition to whatever their other, you know, whatever their major might be. So I might be a math major, but if I go to Biola University, I still have to meet all their Bible class requirements as well. And those are the places where you're going to get basically bombarded with non-affirming theology. So I was, um, and I've just, you know, I guess I love that kind of punishment because I'm a Bible major. That was that's my undergraduate degree. So every single class I had was, you know, focused um, on this specific topic, like quite often. So I was in a a classroom. I think it was on hermeneutics or like some intro to hermeneutics. And the first thing, this is like the day the syllabus is handed out. The first thing that comes out of this professor's mouth is that homosexuality is ruining the church. It has nothing to do with the course curriculum. It has nothing to do with the syllabus or the direction that that specific day in class should have been moving. But this is what came out. Um, and that I found that to happen quite frequently at a place like Biola where, you know, their theological opinions get inserted into lectures. So there's this immediate feeling of isolation. If you're, you know, gay, if you're that gay person sitting in the room, it's like, oh, what do I, (laughs) you know, this professor is not safe. So there's so many ways that this can come out. Um, And what can be maybe the most shocking is that it comes out in classrooms by the professors themselves. Though the classroom isn't the only place LGBTQ students might face more behind-the-scenes persecution, dorm life offers its own unique set of problems and difficult circumstances as well. Well, if a student identifies as trans or as gay or, or whatever, I've heard of stu- other students, their roommates, you know, not wanting to room with them or not, not having the same kind of ability to, to choose housing that may be safe for them. And to... To take that question, you know, to go one step further, there are also students who have been caught in their dorms in, you know, in a relationship with someone of the same sex. 
And then what ha- what happens as you know a form of punishment is that the, those students are that you know they're forced to in some cases be outed to their parents because the school has you know this knowledge over you know what's going on and then a lot of times their scholarships can be threatened if that student doesn't comply to a certain kind of um, you know behavioral policy or they can also in some states impose like conversion therapy or counseling onto those students so these are the things that happen a lot of times behind the scenes where a student isn't necessarily expelled but they're kept in that system in a way that's very dangerous and problematic. At this point, you're probably thinking that with all of these issues, there probably aren't many LGBTQ students that even attend Christian schools anyway. Or that if there are, maybe they should just transfer. This is a question that Erin says she gets constantly. The assumption is that these types of harsh rules and anti-LGBTQ culture will be enough to ward off students who are gay, bi, or trans. But as Erin will explain in a minute, there's a lot of problems with that assumption. In a recent blog that Erin wrote right after we talked, she explains that the question, why do LGBTQ students even go to Christian schools, is the wrong question altogether. Instead, the question that we should be asking is how can we support LGBTQIA students in these spaces who very often have little, if any, communities who support and love them? It's a better question. So um, there's a couple of ways to come at that. And the, the first thing that we need to do or that I suggest doing is like we can't blame the victim. We can't blame the student for being in that kind of space. And I mean... I don't know how many 18 to 24 year olds you know who are financially, fully financially independent from their families um, and can, you know, be sustainable on their own without any help or funding from college uh, through financial aid or from their parents to, to be able to support themselves through student housing, you know, tuition and all those things. That means that that student, like, yes, they might be legally um, categorized as an adult, but they don't have the financial, like, ability to be able to determine, like, oh, I want to go to UCLA or I want to go to Stanford. Well, it's really up to what they can afford or what their family can afford. Um, So there's a clear power dynamic from the university imposed onto the student as well as the parent imposed on the student. in addition, you know, the parent can assert control over these pieces on behalf of that student, and so can the university, and they can threaten to remove those pieces financially, you know, from the student and remove support. So the student is usually, like, under the control and guidance of the parent or the university itself. Um, and then you have the, the factor of, like, the reality for these students are is that they've been Im- immersed in a staunchly conservative household their whole lives. Um, When we study, you know, in philosophy and and especially in like biblical philosophy, there's a there's a philosopher named Hans George Gadamer who talks about how like we we can't control what we're immersed into from birth. Um, And it's just something that we have to kind of deal with, you know, and and I think that these students are navigating the reality of being gay or being LGBTQ 
and also having a faith background maybe imposed onto them from birth. And they're trying to figure that whole thing out. Um, the other part is that, you know, queer and trans students don't even discover that they might be LGBTQIA until they're in college. So they're already in that environment, which is non-affirming. There's really no safe people to go to or a safe space they can go to. And, and it's like, you know, what are they supposed to do? And then when they get on summer break, they go back home to their non-affirming family. So again, I'm just trying to like put the focus on like, is it really a choice on the part of these students? And the other thing someone can ask is, you know, well, why, why can't you just transfer? Well, it's not that easy. Um, it sounds easy, but it's not. So transferring requires a considerable amount of uprooting and more financial, you know, devastation. And that requires uh, sometimes a full relocation, depending on where the student's at. And transferring credits to another university is not easy. You may not be able to transfer all of them. So it will often prolong a student's time in the undergrad system, which means like that financial burden of tuition is prolonged as well. And graduation dates are delayed as a result. Um, and, you know, another university may have its own university requirements that the student has to now reach, um, you know, over and above whatever they had already done previously. So, and I, and I think the, the last thing is, is that many of these students are Christian, you know, and they desire to have that faith remain intact. And they're, like I said before, navigating this really difficult space of faith and sexuality and reconciling both of those, like parts of their identities. So desiring to be in a faith community shouldn't be all that surprising. In light of all this, if you find yourself at a Christian college facing these kinds of issues, there are things you can do. Christians are good at suffering things in silence. But instead, take a line from Dorothy Zuela and Karl Marx, my, my two patron saints. The only humanely conceivable goal is the abolition of circumstances under which people are forced to suffer. There is a type of Christianity possible that accepts and even starts from the experiences and liberation of LGBTQ people. What I really like about Brave Commons is that it's not enough just to diagnose the problem and raise awareness about it. Instead, Brave Commons is out to really help LGBTQ students struggling through bad situations. If you yourself want to get involved in Brave Commons, here's what Aaron says to do. So um, for the students in general, hands down, reach out to us at Brave Commons. Um, our website is bravecommons.org. We are working with so many students across the United States at various Christian campuses. Um, around the nation. So that's a good way to just start um, and find someone outside of your space who is safe. Also, if you if there is community that you're aware of in the form of another student or a safe faculty member um, coming together or in community in that way is really important or finding a affirming church nearby. And that's, these are all things that Brave Commons helps to facilitate for these students. So that's why I want to like point them in the direction to reaching out to us um, initially, just because we're, we see things regarding their safety and their protection that they may not, or that they may not perceive or think about or have thought about. Um, so that would be like the first, the first thing that I would recommend that they do. And then the community part would be the second piece and we would help with that. Okay. Circling back around to my first question, why can Christian universities understand the need for racial diversity, you know, albeit flawed, 
but at least they're trying. But not the diversity of orientation or gender expression. It seems like this is a misunderstanding that relies on a homophobic ideology. There's something there that's blocking them from really realizing what's up. Though it's actually more troubling than just that. In evangelical spaces, debates about whether or not being gay, bi, or trans is a sin always falls back on a specific biblical hermeneutic. This interpretation is one that equates the understanding of gender, marriage, and sexuality that you might find in the books of the Bible to our own contemporary understandings of those topics. The Bible is a really complex book that was written over a huge period of time, and it seems pretty silly to map cultural ideas about gender and marriage of a people group that existed thousands of years ago onto our contemporary situations because, well, there's a huge chasm between the ways that we and the authors of the Bible understand gender and sexuality. This take, that the ideas around marriage and gender are culturally contingent, isn't exactly new. It's definitely something that intellectuals in Christian higher ed already know about. Like if you ever take a Bible course, this is kind of the whole point of it, right? To understand what the cultural context of what, you know, a biblical story actually is. I guess what I'm trying to say is that college administrators aren't ignorant of these kinds of arguments and hermeneutic projects. Instead, they just choose not to believe them. Either this is ideological or simply because they're paid by conservative donors to keep misunderstanding this nuance. The kinds of struggles within Christianity are difficult things. On the one hand, the people excluding LGBTQ individuals from Christian communities are deeply wrong. But still, a bad opinion or a misuse of power doesn't exclude them from Christ's love. That's, you know, the thing about it. You can't just kick people out. However, Christ's love doesn't exempt them from struggle or smooth over their wrongdoing to a marginalized group. It's something they actually have to reckon with. When it comes to ideological struggle with real material consequences, like this one, if you can't just persuade the other side, they have to be defeated politically. This isn't like a call to violence or anything, but it is a call to the material struggle on the side of LGBTQ people in the church. This is getting sort of heavy, and rightly so, it's a big deal. Though to close out this episode, I'll give you a bit of the good news from Aaron on Brave Commons YouTube series, Oratio. Here's Aaron one more time. Jesus, God in flesh, is humiliated. He is rejected by those most powerful in the church of the day. He is hated, scorned, he feels pain, anguish, he laments, he cries out for justice. He places himself intentionally alongside us in humiliation alongside the queer and LGBTQIA community and says, I am with you and I am for you. You, LGBTQIA, are the Imago Dei. You are the divine image of God. You are salt and light to humanity, giving hope, rebirth, life, creativity, imagination, and love. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, then you can subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, just at The Magnificast. Special thanks to Aaron Green from Brave Commons for coming and talking to me. This was really cool and a very neat conversation. Um, it's one that means a lot to me, so I hope that it means a lot to you too. The Magnificast intro is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. All right, see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. 
Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.